0: All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Exodus chapter 33, Exodus 33, we'll also go into 34. I want to welcome you as well. I'm Pastor Matt, I have the privilege of teaching scriptures most Sundays here. Uh, we are going to finish the book of Exodus next Sunday. And then we're going to spend we're going to move into kind of our fall sermon series. We're going to walk through Jesus in his city. Jesus in his city from Mark 11 to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I know many of you have been uh, serving your neighborhoods. Other of you have jumped into relief organizations. Uh, just um, know that, as, just as a pastor, I'm praying that God would renew your strength. Uh, one of the, my own needs this week as I was digging into the Word was to realize that God sustains the weary when they are about His business. And so when we labor and we sacrifice and lay down our lives for others, God will keep us going. Now, with that, have wisdom. Take Sabbath. Get up in the morning. Dig into the Word. Be men and women of prayer. Uh, but know that God will sustain us as we serve Him. And so, just so you know, that the ministry of Eight Days of Hope, who's working out of St. Mark's, uh, they're only here for about five more days. So if you haven't had an opportunity to give a few hours, half a day or a day with them, I'd encourage you to do that. And then those of you, some of you who have served with Samaritan's Purse, um, they're here, I think, through the end of the month. Um, so if you're looking to that. I also want to remind you that uh, it's been the heartbeat of this church since it began 20 years ago to to have the opportunity to plant churches. And one of the hopes of, of this church, um, as well as particularly the leaders, is to, by God's grace, to plant a church maybe in Anamosa in the next year or two. And one of the first efforts toward that is to begin praying monthly in that city and so I want to encourage you that tomorrow night at 7 p.m. We're going to pray in Anamosa at 103 Chamber Drive, 7 o'clock, praying there. And we're going to pray there every month and to see what God does. We think God answers prayer. And so love to have you join us. Uh, I'm excited to see what God will do. Exodus chapter 33, Exodus chapter 34. So I'd love, if you've never got to hear it before, I'd love to tell you my full engagement story sometime. It was on July 25th, 2002, and my friends, it was epic. <laughs> However, soon after, maybe an hour after I had got down on my knee and this beautiful woman had agreed to be my lovely bride, she asked a strange question. She said, honey... Why did you buy a yellow gold ring when we had talked about a white gold ring? Next slide. (laughs) It was almost, but not quite. I hadn't listened, I hadn't done the right thing, and thankfully, in that incidence, it was remedied in a short order. But there's other situations where almost but not quite is deadly. Think about an almost but not quite surgical incision. Or an almost but not quite tightrope walk. But even more serious in an almost but not quite relationship with God. An almost but not quite knowledge of God. The Bible passage we're going to look at Actually, has a series of incidents that are almost, but not quite. Now, as we dig into these, I want us to look at, our, ask you just in your own heart, you know, where where are you at with the Lord? Is it almost but not quite? We're going to look at an almost but not quite spiritual search, an almost but not quite spiritual relationship, and an almost but not quite spiritual connection. I want to start in verse twelve of Exodus. 33. I'm going to read it, and then I'll come back and give you some context. But just listen to this uh, interchange, this conversation between Moses and the Lord God. Verse 12 says, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me, your ways so i may know you and continue to find favor with you remember that this nation is your people and the lord replied my presence will go with you and i will give you rest then moses said to him if your presence does not go with us do not send us up from here how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and know you by name. And then Moses said, Now, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. Now, what I want you to notice is that... Moses actually makes three requests. There's three little prayer requests. What I also want us to see is if he would have been, if he would have settled or or been satisfied with just the first request or just the second request, it would have been an almost but not quite search. Now again, here's the context. Um, Moses has recently come back down the mountain where he had witnessed the people of Israel totally rejecting God in this gigantic rave, worshiping a false God. And when Moses gets down from the bow of the mountain, he breaks the Ten Commandments. He's holding it in his arms. Uh, some uh, of Levitics, uh, some of the Levites have to punish people by the sword, some who continue to rebel. And then it says, "God sends a plague on the people, and he says, by the way, you're on your own. And Moses is petrified to think that the God who has pulled them out of Egypt by his mighty hand is now going to take one gigantic step back and say, good luck. And so Moses prays. He's he's interceding for the people. He's interceding for himself. And his first request, though, he says, God... You need to show me your ways. Verse 13. God, I need to know your ways. Now, this is an important prayer. This is someone saying, I need, you know, God, I want to know what you think is right and what is true and what is beautiful. Uh, I want to know the kind of God you are and the kind of direction that you want my life to leave. And that, that's a good prayer, but I also want you to know that that's not enough. A lot of people will see God enough to know right from wrong. Um, I think a lot of preachers that you might find on television, you know, here's your best life now, follow these seven steps, and you will be on a wonderful path for your life. But Moses doesn't just ask for God's ways. He then proceeds to say, God, I need your presence. I need you to be with me, with your people. So more than just kind of having a moral direction or a spiritual direction. He knows he needs a spiritual presence. He needs God himself to be there in his life. Again, that, I think it's a noble prayer. Right? You want to not just know right from wrong. You want to know that God is near. But that even that can be a, a dangerous prayer request in that sometimes God will feel far. And what happens is sometimes when they lose God's presence or a sense of the divine, they will turn to all sorts of things to feel that again. Some good, maybe just seeking the Lord in prayer, seeking the Lord in this word, that's a good pursuit. But then sometimes it's you know, you start buying whatever's being sold on the internet to feel or sense God. I remember years ago I was a youth pastor at a church. At a you know Bible teaching evangelical church, and I was surprised to get in the mail this piece of paper that was like eight and a half by fourteen, and it was a prayer mat. And if I sent money into the organization that gave this said prayer mat, and I put my knees on this prayer mat every single day, I could be sure that I would sense God's presence. Needless to say, I didn't do that. But I think that sometimes when, you know, especially if there's no um, understanding of the true God, don't have a a respect for God's Word, people will turn to transcendental meditation or a Hindu-Buddhist practice or even the occult just to have some feeling of some sort of of out-of-body experience. I want to sense the outer world. That's a dangerous direction. Moses is going to go, one step farther and he's going to say god i want to i want to see your glory now this is a this is a good prayer the, you know the glory is the is the full manifestation of who god is right when you talk about the glory of an athlete it's what you see with their athleticism or the glory of a cheetah is its speed or the glory of grandma is her generosity right Moses says, I want to know the glory of God. I want to experience God in his full godness. Not according to my dictates, but let God... I want to see God. I I want to know God. I think anything less than that, anything asking to experience God in all of his fullness... It ends up being its some sort of religious hobby, where where in reality, you get to kind of be God and pick and choose what you like. But when you're saying, I really want God in all of his godness, it means I'm willing to humble myself and let God be God. And Moses is saying that. I want God to be God fully and mightily in my life. And God says, that is a good prayer, but you don't quite know what you're asking for. Because if you were to see my glory in its fullness, you would die. And so they, they set up this little system. Moses is going to get thrown into this cleft of the rock. God's going to somehow pass from him, and God's going to hold his hand over. So even if Moses tries to peek, he doesn't see what would kill him. And then what Moses, what Moses gets to see, it's just the trailing glory of God. It's like the exhaust of the car of God's glory. That's all you get to see. That's all you get to see. But that, that will change your life forever. So much so we'll see that when Moses comes down from the mountain, his countenance is glowing. Like he's been physically transformed by this experience with the living God. Let's read how the experience occurs in uh, chapter 34, verse, the first seven verses. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. You broke. It just sounds like he's a father. You, you know, you broke that. And gonna, we're going to do this again. No, I don't think that's right. But verse 2, it says, Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the, on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. That's the the, the name Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming. This is so interesting. Moses wanted to see God's glory. And when God passes, what Moses gets is a sermon from God. He proclaims. God preaches who He is. Who is God? Verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Friends, this is God's glory. The glory is his character. I think that's sometimes why we err on understanding God, is we want to we we see it. We want something to look at and bow down to. And that's always one of the dangers of any form of idolatry. But God is known best through his character. And the the way that God's character is being described is it is this endless stream of goodness. It's an an artesian spring of love. It's a a vast ocean of justice. It's a universe of faithfulness. Never runs out. God never grows tired. God never runs out of love. God is infinite, and when he describes his character, it's this, the infinite nature of all of these glorious attributes, and then somehow sewed together in the beautiful tapestry of the one true and living God. This is God, and anything less than wanting and desiring this God is an almost but not quite search. And what's interesting, if you turn into the New Testament, John chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, this amazing experience that Moses has actually pales in comparison to the glory yet to be revealed when Jesus Christ shows up onto the scene. Listen to what the Apostle John writes about Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 17 through 18 John 1, 17-18 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So what Moses experienced on the mountain was authentic and true. What the apostles and those who first trusted in Christ in the first century They see the Father in the ministry, in the face, in the character, and the glory of Jesus Christ, ultimately in his death, vindicated in his resurrection. There's God. That's the God that you need to seek. And until you find him, every other search will be almost, but not quite. If you just turn a couple pages into the book of John, I'm jumping to chapter 14. Jesus is having this Uh, conversation with the disciples trying to give them hope trying to encourage them to press on and he ends up saying to his disciples in verse 6 of john 14 somewhat famous verse jesus says i am the way and i am the truth and i am the life no one comes to the father but through me verse 7 says if you really know me you will know my father as well from now on you do know him and have seen him and then philip says lord show us the father very similar to Moses' prayer, right? I want to see your glory. Show us. I want to see the Father. That'll be enough. Look what Jesus says in verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. When you see Jesus, the search is over. And yet, there's a beautiful promise in 1 John 3, is that when Jesus comes in all of his glory, you'll see him as he truly is, and you'll become like him. The story begins with almost but not quite search. It culminates in seeing the glory of God, but then there's another almost but not quite. And it's an almost but not quite spiritual relationship. Let me read about this. Uh, Back in chapter 34, I'm going to read verses 8 through 14 and then jump down to 27 through 28. So this is Moses' response to having the glory of God proclaimed to him and pass by him. Verse 8, it says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us into your inheritance now again notice the lord's replied i am making a covenant with you before all your people i will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world the people you live among will see how awesome is the work that i the lord will do for you verse 11 says obey what i command you today I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Verse 14, do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Verse 27 then says, Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Why do I call this an almost but not quite spiritual relationship? Well, what is happening here at the end of Exodus 34? It's actually the description of a second wedding. It's the second covenant-making relationship that Israel has with God. If you remember, we studied this from Exodus 19 through Exodus 24, God entered into a covenant with Israel. And he described the outlines of this marital relationship with God being the husband of his people and Israel being his bride. And at the end of Exodus chapter 24, the people said, We will do absolutely everything you have commanded. Covenant established. But then what happened while Moses was still on the mountain, at the bottom, was covenant unfaithfulness. Israel was adulterous. They had broken the covenant. And so what's being done here in Exodus 34 is second marriage. We're redrawing this relationship together. You know that the marriage is on on a rocky footing when God has to say, I'm really nervous that you're going, to worship, or you're going to go get into a relationship with other boyfriends. Did you catch that in verse 14? Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. I've done a few weddings and attended more than I've conducted, and I've never included that in the wedding. Hey, by the way, none of you, no know hanky-panky with other girlfriends and boyfriends. Now it's assumed. I might add it. Might add it to the vows. But this is, it's just this this reestablishment of the covenant, it's it's putting it kind of in, in, in relief. Like, this is in the context of your unfaithfulness, Israel. There is something broken in this relationship with God and Israel from the get go. In fact, according to Jeremiah 31, And throughout, just turn with me. I didn't get this onto the PowerPoint, so I'm going to read it to you. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah is a prophet, and he's foretelling something that's going to happen in the future. And he's actually pointing to Jesus. We know that because the book of Hebrews, Hebrews tells us so. But Jeremiah 31 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their Hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The covenant that's getting put together, the spiritual relationship that's back here in Exodus 34, it's almost, but not quite. It is a beautiful thing. God has chosen Israel. He's going to reveal his glory through the people of Israel so that the nations might know. But from the get-go, it's broken because of their adulterous hearts. And so Jeremiah says, guess what? A new day is coming where there's going to be a new relationship with God that it isn't going to be this outward thing. It's going to be this inward thing. It's going to change your heart that you would love me. Change your heart that you would Obey me. You see, an inward transformation is needed. There wasn't enough power in the old covenant. There's, a, there's something bigger and more powerful had to happen, and that's going to come through the personal work of Jesus Christ and then the sending of the Holy Spirit. So just to try to help you understand this, I want to tell you a little bit about my week. Uh, I was going to do a very simple job. I was going to replace something called a condensate pump. So I have the box of the, the second one I bought. Story to come. So all this is is this little my air conditioner furnace produces some precipitation. It dribbles down into the pump, uh, and then the pump like shoots it out so it can drain away. It's a very simple device, and mine was really noisy. So I'm going to replace this pump, and so I order one, and it comes, and it has to be hardwired to the furnace, and so um, I tried to do this thinking i do it well, and I I think I got it figured out, and I go to turn it on, and it turns on, but not all the way, and and why? Because I bought the pump built for 220 or 230 power, and it's only being run with 110, 115, and so the pump kind of has some power, but not enough to move it, so it's supposed to shoot up to 20 feet in in the air, my pump went about 6 inches. So we had to buy a new one and do something totally different. But in some ways, that's what the almost but not quite spiritual relationship was under the Old Covenant. It didn't have enough power. It didn't have enough transformation. There's even subtle warnings all throughout the Old Covenant that you don't need a circumcision of the flesh. You need a circumcision of the heart. God has to come in and rewire and restore your soul so that you can have a real and abiding relationship with God. if that's never happened to you, if you've never experienced the power of God coming in and changing you, you get down on your knees, or you can sit in red chairs too, but you ask God, God, would you change me from the inside out? Would you make me a new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit? Would your son's blood forgive me of sins, cleanse me of wickedness, and make me new? Bible calls that conversion. Sometimes it's called regeneration. Sometimes it's called being born again. If that hasn't happened to you, you have an almost but not quite spiritual relationship. But almost, almost but not quite is not enough. And so ask God to come in and change you. I want to look at one last, one last almost but not quite. It comes at the end of thirty four, verse twenty nine. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And when Aaron and all all the Israelites saw Moses, that his face was radiant, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near to him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord now this is one of those passages that I love to imagine, but you think about this: when, God, when Moses came down from the mountain, everyone could tell that Moses had been transformed physically by being with God. I, I do wonder, and this is my spiritual speculation if if he he is experiencing a little bit what heaven will be like when when our bodies are transformed i get that because you think about at the transfiguration of jesus at the top of the mountain he glowed right there's something about the transformation of god is people glow and obviously that was pretty intimidating and so the people were like whoa (laughs) moses like should we get close to this guy And Moses had to kind of woo them, hey, come, I'm going to tell you what God has told me. He tells them that the covenant has been reestablished. God is going to go with us. And then all throughout his life, he would have these little encounters with God, and it would transform him just a little bit. And he had to wear this veil. This veil gets picked up later in the New Testament, and it's It's really beautiful, even though it's somewhat confusing. Just turn to 2 Corinthians 3. I think without 2 Corinthians 3, it would be very challenging to understand anything about this veil. Uh, But the Apostle Paul helps us understand that that veil symbolized something about the Old Covenant in comparison to what God wanted to do in the New Covenant with Jesus Christ. Paul writes in verse 10, Uh, he says, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. So what he's saying is, when the old covenant came, there was a glory to it. But now that the greater glory, the work of Jesus Christ has come, that old glory has passed away. It's much the same way that the moon has a glory to it. But when the sun comes out, you no longer see the moon. Right? There's this idea of when Jesus arrives, all that precedes it has just been surpassed. Verse 11 says, And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Listen, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who had put a veil over his faith to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul has done here is he's saying that under the old covenant, under the old law, there was a veil to the full revelation of who God is. Now, it told you things about God. God was holy. You don't approach God willy-nilly. You get a sense of his morality, his justice. We hear about his love and his graciousness. But if you stay, this is what Paul's saying, if you stay in the law, if you stay in the Old Testament, there's a veil. You don't fully know God. It's not a true, open, unhindered relationship with God. There's a veil. But when you turn to Christ, the veil is ripped away. You have open access with God. There's no barrier between you and God. You have him fully and completely. You know, like many of you, I've been wearing masks at various locations. I have a gator, which is way cooler. You know, but I guess, don't you guys all agree that there's something that inhibits human relationships with a mask? And we know that there's some good reasons that masks are worn, but it does make it hard to kiss my wife right, you, you do wonder if the people at Menards are actually making faces at you. <laughs> I, I have it on good account that they are, right? And so we just know that there's something about the veiling of a face, the covering of a face that says you're not fully connected, that the spiritual connection with God is not full until the veil or the mask is ripped away. And in the middle of Jesus' ministry in John 524, Jesus says, "That veil or that separation can end through me and through me only." Let me read John 524 This is God's word. Jesus says, "Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged." but has crossed over from death to life. Jesus is saying that through me, you can have an abiding spiritual connection with God. You're no longer connected to death, you're connected to life. You have crossed over and you are wrapped into the arms of God. I wonder, do you know Jesus that way? Have you crossed over from death to life? If you haven't, Jesus says how? You believe. You trust who Jesus is, that he has died for you, that he has rose, risen triumphantly over the grave, and you put your faith in him. Let me encourage you, though, that if you are someone who has professed to follow Jesus, I want to encourage you this week, pick any of the Gospels. These are the short biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I'd encourage you... Get up every morning and say this prayer and then start reading. Show me your glory. Right? Jesus has said, if you see me, you have seen the Father. And so pick up the Bible. Say the prayer. Say, God, I want to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And then start reading so that you can see God. Jesus is the end of our spiritual search He's the beginning of a true and abiding spiritual relationship. He is the certainty of our spiritual connection to God. And anything less is almost, but not quite. It's like eating a ham sandwich on Thanksgiving Day. It's not what it's meant to be, but Jesus is. So let me pray for us, and then we'll remember Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your abiding word, the word that is true, the word that helps us to understand the realities we face each day. Lord, I'm thankful that Moses uh, knew that your ways weren't enough, even your presence wasn't enough. He wanted to see your glory. I pray that that would be our hearts too. We would want to see your glory. We would want to know the character of God. I pray that we'd all... Just hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we would seek the Lord Jesus Christ who has made a way for us to have life, life everlasting, a connection with the Father. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would still see more of your glory. I pray that we wouldn't be content. That we would press on. That it would be true of us individually, part of this church family, but true of us corporately. That we would seek the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.